friends, and welcome to Typology. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of his new book. The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery has sold nearly 100,000 copies in its first year. And more importantly, we wanted to thank you for helping to make that come true. If you haven't read the book yet, go to Amazon, iTunes, or wherever your local books are sold and grab a copy. Now moving along, we've got a really great show for you today. It's a super fun one, but before we get to it, here are a few things that you'll want to know. First, if you're new to the Enneagram and want to learn more about it, go to the podcast page at www.typologypodcast.com. That's T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com and download a free chapter from Ian's book, The Road Back to You, titled Finding Your Type. Or if you'd rather listen to a quick introduction to the Enneagram rather than read one, you can download and listen to our very first episode titled Introducing Typology and the Enneagram on the podcast page as well. Second, while you're on the Typology website, visit the About page and take the introductory Enneagram assessment to start the journey toward identifying your Enneagram number. Finally, at the end of the show, Ian offers a few practical suggestions relating to the number that we discussed this week, so be sure and listen all the way through to the end. And now, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters. Rashida B., Travis Berkeley, Amy Carroll, Howard Cornett, Leanne Colshaw-Ewart, Jamie Garrington, Allison Greenwald, Camelia, Andrea Kane, Jordan Kelly, Felipe Kiner, Joseph Luthen, and Jessica Lynn. Your contributions are so greatly appreciated. Thank you. If any of you out there would like to help out as well, you may go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology Tribe, this is Ian Cron, and I am delighted to have our next guest on Typology, my friend Claire Diaz Ortiz. Claire is an author, she's a speaker, and a real technology innovator. Uh, she was one of the early employees at Twitter. In fact, so early that her her Twitter handle is at Claire. So that's pretty amazing. That'll tell you how early on she was uh, in the game with Twitter. Um, she uh, is a corporate social innovation person. Yeah, she leads corporate social innovation and was recently named one of the 100 most creative people by Fast Company. And as a four, I'm already envying that title. Uh, she's seen the world having lived in four continents. She's traveled to more than 50 countries and reads 200 books a year. Let me repeat that, 200 books a year. Uh, and today she's here to talk to us about what it's like to be an Enneagram One, often known as the perfectionist, although I, I'm now leaning into the name, the improver. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here and talk. So Claire, tell everybody where you live and where you're, where we're taught, where, where you are right now, where you live. I am right now in my home office in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We are in the midst of a kind of 
really hot almost summer storm so there was hail earlier and now it's just kind of windy and really dark and yet there's a rainbow so it's it's a good time to to be in my home office looking out in the lake okay so i have been in argentina and buenos aires a few times what 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 part of town are you in uh we're in the suburbs so we're like 25 minutes outside of town in tigre okay it's such a beautiful city it is. My husband is from here, and so he was born and raised in the city. He's an architect, and when we sort of said, okay, we're going to you know, settle down here for real and have some kids and stuff, I really wanted to be kind of outside the city and replicate a little bit of my sort of California uh, growing upness of having a yard and all this kind of stuff, and it was hard for him at first. He's kind of this architect city boy. Um, to kind of think of, you know, living out where there are, you know, frogs and ducks and all this kind of stuff. Because it's very, I mean, we're only 25 minutes out this, outside the city, but it's very sort of like agrostic. We're on this lake and yeah, so, uh-huh. Wow. So, Claire, tell me, how, how were you first introduced to the Enneagram? Oh, my Enneagram origin story. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I think it was in, okay, well, yeah, it was 2005. And I was in Seattle with two girlfriends. This was a couple years after college. And we basically had a bottle of wine one night. And instead of going out, my friend said, hey, I just found out this cool new thing called the Enneagram, or just found out about this new thing called the Enneagram. And she pulled out a few books. And we basically spent the whole night just pouring through it, right? And my main memory of that night, um, first of all, it was it was very, we, you know, we did like a quiz, you know, the test at the beginning of the night to see our types. My one friend knew all about it at that point, and the other two of us were kind of learning from her and from these books we were kind of reading through all night. Um, we did, you know, a, a test, a simple test early on in the evening, but then when I started reading, I mean, it, to me, it was just instant um, realization that I was a one. Um, but then the, the funniest moment of the night, which is the moment I will always remember, is one of the books she had at the time was really big on like what your how your Enneagram type is related to an animal, right? And so we got to the part in the book where it says that, you know, my animal is the ant because the ant is like, you know, industrious. And it was just like an amazingly pathetic animal. And then my best friend's animal, she's a type nine, is the sloth. And we just like died laughing. And I was like, I, I will love this thing forever. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people I know that discovered the Enneagram over several bottles of wine at a party or yes. on a retreat yes. somewhere with friends, you know. Yes. That is, uh, that's, that's fairly classic. What did you feel like when you discovered you were a one? I mean, it was absolutely to a T me. Well, I will say, I mean, there's one area of oneness that I, I still take issue with um, in relation to how I, I think it maybe doesn't intersect with my personality. But basically everything about the one, um, the you know industrious little never give up ant i'm also a capricorn so just sort of climbing you know that goat climbing up that hill always and never kind of you know giving myself grace and just all those things just resonated so so clearly with me and i mean it wasn't i guess i felt known i didn't necessarily feel happy but i felt extremely known and i'd never done really I guess I'd maybe done some personality testing in college, like for, you know, a career day type thing, but I definitely never done anything where I was reading 
and I was really reading about me, right? I was reading about a one and I was like, that's me, that's me, that's me. How could, how can so many millions of people in the world be just like me in this way? So it was, it was a really fun introduction um, to the Enneagram. I then read some books later on. And then of course your book last year was kind of a really good refresher and I'm super interested in it. Mm. So the unconscious motivation of, of ones, for those of you out there who don't know is, and I'm going to put it this way first, uh, the ones are the great improvers of the Enneagram. And I can't tell you how many ones have said to me, I hate that we're called the perfectionists mm. because it, it, it sounds immediately like it's negative. And none of the other types have that kind of negative uh, kind of tone. And so I'm always like, well, actually, when, when ones are healthy, they are improvers. They can, they, their ability to improve anything is astonishing mm. to see how something can be better, whether it's a system or a company or a person or a room. They just have this ability to, to know right off the bat, oh, this is how it can be better. So I would say the unconscious motivation of a one is to improve themselves, very concerned with self-improvement, improve others, and improve the world. Now, when ones uh, kind of start to go into disintegration, right, being unhealthy, that compulsion to improve, or that I should say the desire to improve, becomes a compulsion to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Uh, so anyhow, I love to start with the improvers because, gosh, that's the superpower. That's the gift uh, of the one. It, do you have that gift? I have that gift, and I also ha and I also have that curse. I mean, much of my work story, uh, my career story over the last dozen years, is all about this story of of being a perfectionist, of getting to the place of burnout, and of getting back from that. And what's I want to I guess start that story by saying the thing that most kind of impacted me about reading The Road Back to You last year was that I, for years, thought that perfectionism was not a thing I had simply because I am a person who um, like finds loopholes, right? Like I know the frequent flyer system backwards and forwards and how to get, you know, the cheap miles flights, right? And that made me feel like I wasn't a perfectionist, it made me feel like I was finding the loopholes or, you know, skimming the fat off things or somehow that I wasn't being a perfectionist because in my mind, being a perfectionist was all about sort of doing things to a T, right? I mean, I remember in college, mm -hmm. we had this, I'm really not interested in science and math in any way at all, unfortunately. And in college, I had to complete three courses in science in order to graduate, right? And so I went out and I found the three least science mathy like courses possible, right? One of them was like the, the anatomy of Italian art when I was studying overseas in Florence. And this other class was called Oceans, right? And then there was another like Total Rocks for Jocks class. And these were the classes I took. So I, I think back to that and I think, how can that be you know, a perfectionist thing to do, right? To, to cut corners in that way. So it was really interesting to, when I read The Road Back to You last year and I started thinking a lot more about perfectionism and started understanding that actually it was about sort of holding myself um, to a, a certain um, 
to a certain standard. And, you know, if, if I decided I, I didn't care about the, the stupid oceans class, then I didn't care that I got a C in it, right? But then in all these other areas of my life, I demanded extreme excellence. So that was a big, big shift for me um, in terms of accepting mm. accepting what oneness really was. Um, but in terms of kind of the larger story of burnout, I mean, I I just have driven myself to the brink and have, have worked to come back from that. And I think that's a problem a lot of one's face. It it definitely is. And I want to circle back to this moment of being driven to to the to the brink, but but to say also that, you know, ones are not uh, necessarily perfectionistic in every area of their life. I mean it can be very selective. Uh, and so I think it's more of a stereotype to think, mm. oh, you know, across the board, ones are perfectionists. It can be very, very specific. Like I, you know, a one may not care whether or not their closets mm-hmm. are completely ordered, but when they're writing an orchestral score, hmm. they become obsessed with perfection, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, it, it you know, I think it, it could be very nuanced as is true with, with every type. So, so, all right, so tell me the story of being driven to the brink, because I think that would be helpful for people to understand ones or for ones to feel understood. So, I mean, it, it kind of had to happen to me twice. I basically, um, you know, this is such a story of oneness. I, uh, my undergrad, I did undergrad at Stanford and I, after three years had finished the degree, but wanted to stick around. And so found, you know, a loophole because I'm great at loopholes where I could do a master's in my fourth year and uh, stick around with my friends. My parents were paying for like 80% of my college. So it was a good deal for me, you know? Um, so in four years I graduated with, you know, an undergraduate degree, like with honors and then a master's degree. And I had like two theses and I was major health issues and completely burnt out. So I, um, did what I guess the only, you know, reasonable, um, thing I could do in that situation. I moved to some tiny town in Mexico. I read about in a book about a couple who was retiring to, you know, um, get away from it all. So this book I'd found, this couple retiring to go build some house in some tiny town in Mexico. I read it and I say, that's for me, right? It was obviously like I was just calling out for a, a period of nothingness. And everyone around me had like fancy jobs and was doing stuff. And I was just, my thing was, I want to move to Mexico. And I was saying to people, I just want to be bored again. So I spent a year there. I had this amazingly crappy, amazingly wonderful online editing job that had paid for you know a big chunk of my education. I'd been doing it since I was 18. So I'd been doing that for five years. I did it while I was in Mexico. And that year was just like an incredible reset. And it made me realize, you know, I don't want to do the traditional path. I want to do some sort of weird stuff. So I started kind of traveling the world. I ended up um, starting a nonprofit in Africa. And then through all this, found my way to um, kind of get back on the hamster wheel, as I guess (laughs) you call it. I, I went to business school. I became an early employee at Twitter. And I just started churning it out. I mean, I was working like crazy, traveling like crazy. I I don't know. I think I've published like, you know, eight books in seven years. It was just like this. And I think my real moment of burnout came um, shortly after my first child was born in 2014. And I I think the the clear, I, I don't know, the clearest sign of burnout is, you know, when you live tweet your daughter's birth. 
um, which is what I did. So I, <laughs> I, I was like on the home page oh of Yahoo. I mean, my daughter was born three weeks early and a really quick labor. So like friends and family saw me on Good Morning America. They were like, what? You had a baby last night? All this stuff. I had live tweeted her birth, right? It's like the most overconnected, overexposed thing you could sort of possibly do. And I mean, in the moment, in that day, it was it was fun for me. So the actual act, I, I think, was positive. But I think its place in the larger story of me just not being able to stop is really important. And so it was kind of after that, in the months after sort of her birth and coming to understand how my life was going to change now, um, that I ended up leaving Twitter and just sort of restarting this whole period of my life that involved a ton of self-investigation and ultimately a ton of work into what um, what productivity meant, what purposeful productivity was, what it mean to as I call it, what it means to as I call it now work by design, uh, you know, which led me to basically you know write a book and develop this course and start coaching all these women entrepreneurs who were facing the same problems. I was facing. So it's been this huge, huge life um, change. And it's all, you know, the result of, of pushing myself too hard and, and feeling what that does and then trying to climb back from it. Mm. So I guess the question I have is going again back to unconscious motivation. How does, for example, you know, live tweeting you're having a baby, which is not, in some ways, very one-ish, because some people might think that's a little, you know, quote-unquote, inappropriate, which would be a hang-up for ones, you know? Like, how does that tie into the need to mm -hmm. improve yourself, mm -hmm. others, and the world? Like, how, how does that, yeah, relate to that unconscious motivation of the one? Well, so I think my issue with oneness always, and this is the thing I've always wondered about, is this whole idea of improvement and reformer, I think there's a side of me that is very rebellious and very much about bending the rules. And, and yes, there are sides of me that are sort of more traditional reformer-like, right? I, I started a nonprofit in Africa 10 years ago that still exists. Obviously, that's very clear reformer stuff. But I really think there's so much in my story about sort of pushing the envelope and bending the rules that always, to me, felt like it somehow ran in contrast to improvement and perfection. So this is really kind of the crux of the issue I've always sort of had with oneness. And maybe maybe this is an example of a place where there's a hole or, or not. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the best sort of answer I could say to what place um, does, you know, live tweeting have in being a one? I, I think it's all connected to, to some, to some complex idea of, um, of success probably and of you know trying to to be the best version of me and in that moment I was you know an exec at a social media company and maybe that was what it meant I, I don't know yeah okay so I may be just taking us down uh, a bunny path here and but it still might be instructive to people okay so let me ask you just a, a couple of a couple of questions um, so are you uh, an idealist uh, or are you more of an idealist or more of a pragmatist? I am a pragmatist with an extreme sense of what is fair, but what is fair in my mind is highly subjective. Okay. 
Um, are you, do you have that constant inner stream of negative self-commentary that's judging your every thought, word, and deed? Do I have that? Oh, Ian, do I have that? That is, yeah, that's the, the struggle of my life. Okay. And what, do, can you tell me some of the things that the, that, that inner critic tells you? Um, I mean, my inner critic is, is never content with what I have done. My inner critic feels that I am not good enough constantly. That is, that is the challenge. And that is, you know, me pushing ever since I was, you know, a little kid is just to, to prove something in terms of success, because then I will feel that I'm good enough. Okay. You just said the word success. Could, um, so is success more important to you than perfection? Probably, given that I have a problem with this whole idea of perfection and I see it as so sort of full of full of holes and, you know, I don't I don't mind, you know, I have this ridiculous form I have to turn in. I have I have twin boys um, and we have to get them their U.S. passports. Right. And so I had to spend about five hours this week making a list of every time I have traveled in and out of the U.S. in my in my 35 years, right? Mm-hmm. And this is an insane task, but this is the type of thing where I don't even care about doing it right. Do you know what I mean? And so it's when mm-hmm. that sort of thing comes up that I'm like, how can I really be a perfectionist? Like, honestly, I don't care. I mean, I put like a, you know, a, a maybe 50% effort into the task trying to make it look reasonable, but I didn't really dig in. So okay. I think, you know, with perfectionism, I, I see a lot of, a lot of holes. Okay. So um, were you more concerned about just, I just need to get this done and get it done as quickly as possible than I need to get it done perfectly? Oh, absolutely. Because I don't believe that it really matters. I believe it in and of itself is a stupid exercise. Okay. So are you driven more by goals than by standards? Yes. Okay. I don't, standards do not mean a lot to me unless I actually buy into them. I mean, I, yeah, standards, okay. I, yeah. Okay, so. Standards like a rule. I'm kind of not into rules, I, I guess, unless I believe it. I mean, some rules are good and some rules are bad, but I guess I just see rules as sort of some like thing. Okay, but you, and you're willing to kind of say, eh, you know, I can sort of, you know, to get the job done, I can bend a rule here and there if I can get away with it. I, I'm a huge rule bender. <laughs> and is it- I'm a huge rule bender. And I feel like that's how I've, I mean, I feel like that's how I've succeeded, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there are probably, you know, in my story going back times where I maybe bent the rules a little too much and that sort of thing. But I mean, a lot of the examples of me rule bending have been wildly successful. Okay, so when you're working in a company and you're doing different, you know, whatever your task is, what is it about other people or in a project that will just absolutely drive you crazy? Um, so many things. It's hard to start. <laughs> well, just just um, jump in. I'm curious. Just jump in. Sure. I mean, the um, TPS reports, meetings, you know, the bureaucracy, the this is how it should be done, but no one is actually exploring why it needs to be done that way. I mean, I think anytime someone tells me, 
you have to do it this way. My first instinct is why? Is, is that really the smartest way, the fastest way, the wisest way? I mean, I always want to improve the system and improve the way we work. And one of my huge issues in, in being in, in the corporate world in Silicon Valley was just seeing, you know, I was working at this company, Twitter, that I thought was doing amazing things, but I felt like the inefficiencies around me were just like mind boggling. And mm. that's really what sent me on this rabbit hole of years of research into what sort of real productivity was and what it meant to really work by design, as I call it. I mean, I just am overwhelmed by the inefficiencies in in our work world, essentially. Okay, Claire, I'm I'm just gonna present an idea to you. Uh, do you remember mm-hmm. which which type you identified most with after one? No. Okay. So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna propose an idea to you, but I'm trying to think about how best to do this. All right, let me, let me just sort of uh, ask you a couple of other questions here. Would, would people say that you are, uh, or have they said to you before that, that you um, often seem or are disconnected from your own feelings, having trouble identifying or recognizing them and also in others? Oh, yes. I mean, most people, when they meet me, think I'm uh, cold, unfeeling, not emotional. Yeah. The, okay. You know, the resting bleep face, they call it. What What do they call it? You know, the resting face. You know that, Ian. <laughs> yes, I do. But it's just too funny for me. That is awesome. Okay, so... Um, I mean, Ian, so I have, you know, I've got three little kids, right? And one of them is, only one of them really looks exactly like me. And everyone's like, he looks just like you, except he smiles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Now, my friends say, you know that I'm really happy if I look like I want to kill someone. You know that's when I'm really happy. Oh, my gosh. So, do you... Uh, tend to think that love comes from being perfect, not making mistakes, being appropriate, you know, kind of containing uh, uh, animal, more instinctual emotions like anger? Or would you say that love comes more from accomplishments, achievement, being productive, you know, efficient, and just, you know, just nailing things one after another, hitting goals, hitting, you know, tasks, and just, you know, killing it that way. Yeah, I mean, I I think love comes from, yeah, making my dad proud, right? So nailing things. (laughs) Okay. Um, Does your self-esteem, is it kind of rooted in being successful and productive? Absolutely. Okay. And when you were inside of, of Twitter and, and, and when you work in companies, um, it, you said that the thing that you spotted first, I think, and that drives you crazy most is when you see inefficiencies. Absolutely. That's my whole thing. It just became this huge passion for me within my corporate career. And, and that's basically what I what I spend a ton of my time doing these days is right. just writing about, yeah, how we can how we can do this life better. OK, so how do you feel when people come to you and just want to talk about feelings? You know, not good. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I know this is an issue with me. So I've obviously spent 
the last few years kind of trying to, you know, like open up. And I mean, okay, let me tell you this. One of my, you know, the last four years is kind of this whole realization of, you know, going from burnout to balance and trying to figure out things and realizing that I have a lot of identity stuff mixed up as well. And all this happened also with with being a mom. You know, I had three kids really quickly. And there's lots of identity stuff here, like as a woman, as a successful woman, what that means. So one of my first, you know, when you're trying to figure out who you are as a woman, um, in you know 2014, 2015, obviously the first thing you do is go start reading Brene Brown, right? So I read, yeah. you know, I, I got her four, you know, at the time she had three books, now she has four, and I read them in succession, obviously. The first one, The Gifts of Imperfection, I didn't understand that because I didn't think I was a perfectionist. Um, the next one was Daring Greatly. I, I didn't think that really related to me at the time because, you know, at the time I was trying to take a step back, wasn't really trying to dare to do anything, right? Um, and then it was her next book. That was when I was like, oh my gosh, now I love Brene Brown. Because all of a sudden it was me understanding that there was so much identity shame wrapped up in this idea of of me, you know, needing to be successful and everything that meant about me kind of, you know, caring about sort of productivity and inefficiencies. So for me, this sort of identity thing has been a big shift. Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. So, so Claire, um... I'm going to read you, I'm going to give you two sentences and I want you to tell me which of them you identify with most, okay? Mm -hmm. The first one is, I have a compulsive need to improve or perfect myself, others, and the world, okay? Mm -hmm. The second one would be, I have a compulsive need to succeed and to avoid failure at all costs. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the second one. Okay, so I'm, I never type people, okay? I really avoid it. Um, sometimes it's hard for me, you know, to say, oh, you know. But what I'm gonna suggest is, is um, the possibility that you're not a one. Mm. Uh, what? Yeah, I, I know, uh, and I'm gonna, we're gonna unpack this for a second. I, I would, if I were, you know, consulting with you and trying to initially figure out type, I would probably first suggest that you look at threes. Okay. Which are the performers and achievers. Okay. Um, and that, that second statement that I made uh, uh, is actually the description of the unconscious motivation of threes. Mm. And threes can often be perfectionistic uh, and very, very driven and would immediately notice inefficiencies because they are all about productivity, efficiency, and accomplishments. Okay. And doing, 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 and never stopping doing mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. a fault. They get more done than any other number on the Enneagram. Like, for example, mm -hmm. uh, writing eight books in seven years <laughs> or seven books mm -hmm. in eight years. Mm -hmm. And as consultants, they would go into a company and the first thing they would see is, oh my gosh, you can do this so much more efficiently. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that you are willing to bend rules, ones don't bend rules. They actually are mm. averse to ever bending rules. Now a three would bend rules and sometimes they'll sometimes be accused by ones of cutting corners in order to cross the mm. finish line first to cross the finish line first, because it's all about coming in first. Wow. Uh, and oh, this is mind blowing. 
<laughs> and also being the star performer, my little Stanford University friend, and uh, racking up credentials and doing everything they can in a sense. And I, again, I, again I'm, this is all me not typing you, but just I'm, I'm just going to feed you lots of information here and see if it, if it rings for you. Oh, you can type me. Type me. Type me. No, no. It, it's something that you have to own, you know, yourself and, and look at. Hmm. But uh, so many of the things that you were saying are so much more uh, suggestive of a three than than a one. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the idea that identity is a major struggle for you. Uh, so yes. for twos, threes, and fours in that uh, heart triad, shame is a major issue and projecting images because they don't believe they mm-hmm. can be loved for who they really are. So they project mm-hmm. images. And the mm-hmm. image uh, that the three uh, is always projecting is of success, of uh, competency, of, and they, they, they want to be admired by other people and they confuse, mm. I think, admiration and respect for love <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from other people. And they are typically driven, they're type A, often type A workaholic types. Uh, they uh, are the types who do get driven to the brink and they have a big crash and then oftentimes, by the way, they'll write a book about the big crash because they want to spin <laughs> failure as a success. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> spinning, spinning failure as a success is a, a, a real hallmark feature. Like, this is what I learned, and I, you know what I mean? Like, so that they, they're, they're actually landscaping or manicuring uh, the, the failure as something positive. Am I, what, what am I saying here that is anything optics, I'm saying here, Kyle? Like, optics. <laughs> this is so fun. This feels wow. like, uh, this feels like something that would be so helpful for people about, because uh, I mean, it's not uncommon for ones and threes to misidentify type with each other because ones are mm. so driven. And, but the things that, some of the things that you're saying are not do not align with ones in a way that I would immediately go mm. there and say, "Oh yeah, for sure, you're a one." Can I ask you a question? Do Do you think mm-hmm. either of your parents were ones? Well, my dad, I guess, because my dad, right? My dad's the rule follower, also, as as well as having lots of the qualities that I have. He's the one that sticks to the rules. Okay. Does he ever? Mm. Uh, does he ever? Is he ever critical or judgmental of you because you bend the rules? Oh, yes, for sure. Okay. All right. That's, so. the, that's a conflict point we have. I mean, my dad's amazing, incredibly proud of me, all this. But I mean, you know, when he sees, you know, signs of, of me not taking sort of the traditional path and, and doing a few too many, you know, loops or whatever. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So yeah. threes would sure. spot. I mean, this is this is classic three behavior. They will find the quickest way to the finish line. They see that path mm-hmm. and are charging down mm-hmm. it before anybody else yep. is. Like, oh, wait a minute. Yep. That's the fastest way to the finish line. Everybody, follow me. Right. Right. Um, that would drive a one crazy, and a one would mm. judge that as being willing to sacrifice quality in the interest of getting there first. 
Oh, and I think that's a huge um, critique that anyone could have of me at times. Oh my gosh, wow. this is going to this is going to be helpful for people. Um, have wow. you had difficulty in intimate relationships, like when people demand or make place demands on you for close emotional connection? I mean, sure. So I once had a. Um, this is a, so my best friend is a social worker and she's you know done a lot of therapy work as a therapist over the years and um you know when we talk about languages of love um my mother's language of love is definitely quality time right and that is not my language of love my mother and i um, love each other very much but you know she annoys me and we have very different personalities right i'm very sort of logical and she's very emotional and so I once had, you know, my, my best friend recommend that something we could do that would be great together would be go to movies because she would feel that, you know, we were spending quality time, but I wouldn't have to engage in that intense emotional discussion that I didn't really want to do. Oh, good. Yes. So what is it about your mom? And it sounds like she might be, and I don't know this, I'm typing from a distance, but it sounds like she might be a two right? The, the befriender or the helper. Um, mm -hmm. What is it about her that an, can annoy you at times? I mean, my mom is so different from me. She, um, you know, is like a free associator, extrovert, um, bubbly, happy, sort of always ready to kind of do something crazy, not grounded in logic. Um, you know, you have a conversation with her and you'll start talking about one thing and you'll end up somewhere completely different and that wasn't my intention and yeah we just have different personalities but she's you know incredibly warm and generous at the same time um but yeah so i think uh, it would not be uncommon for a three to become impatient with a two if your mom is a two mm -hmm. they would become impatient uh with that uh over emotionality oh with yep, uh yep, yep maybe feeling like all that love is being intrusive and engulfing and smothering mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and you know feeling like hey we got to get stuff done okay so yep. maybe we can put yep. these feelings aside uh, and get to it <laughs> you sound like you know like we're just like uh, like on antique roadshow and you just found out your painting is a Rembrandt <laughs> No, this is crazy. This is really, really crazy. This is totally mind-blowing. Um, and I think what's so interesting is because all the Enneagram reading I've done since I typed myself all those years ago, I haven't actually read about any other types. I just read about my type, which I call the one over and over, you know? Sure. Which I think is probably something people do. You don't keep exploring the other types because you think you know. Mm, yeah, actually, there are some types that will read every single type, Claire, Oh, really? Yeah. Like, oh. I read, I'm a four, I read every single type. Uh, but threes would think, oh, I've got my, you know, ones, well, how do I say this? A three would typically say, okay, I know my type, who cares about the other types? <laughs> mm, more evidence. Well, <sighs> yeah, or it's just too much data. And, and it's too, you know, actually threes, like in a business setting are like, mm -hmm. please, no more data or details, okay? I don't mm -hmm. really wanna get too far into that. I wanna get to the doing part, you know, let somebody else deal with the details and the data. Just give me the big mm -hmm. meta picture and I know what to do. That's, that's me. No, this is really, really interesting. I mean, I can't wait to go grab my copy of The Road Back to You and read all about threes now because I, I'm just hearing so much in here that also 
resolves the problem I'd always had with ones of feeling like, you know, the the downside of me as a person is that I can be critiqued for those loopholes, you know, mm-hmm. and feeling like that somehow that didn't jive with oneness. It doesn't really. Um, now, I'm not saying you're not a one. You got to own the three thing yourself. Right. But uh, I would say that and for folks listening, this is important. Sometimes that negative stream of self-commentary that people go, oh, that that's me as a one is actually what I would call a uh, intergenerational inheritance. So Hmm. if your father was a one Mm -hmm. and you could pick up in the environment, because those voices are so strong in the one that you can almost hear them atmospherically in the house. And and then you you kind of swallow the swallow them whole, regardless of what your core type is. You swallow them whole, and they're running like a loop, but it's more ghosty or more gauzy in the background. It's not as loud and as uh, overwhelming as it is for the one, but it's in the background, kind of running. And and of course threes can they're so driven, they're crazy driven. Mm-hmm. And so that one voice could be just whipping the horse and you're hearing it uh, even more amplified because you're, it's possible that your dad had it and mm-hmm. you were just hearing his voices that you inherited. Mm-hmm. Does that ring as a possibility? or? Oh, I mean, I think, yeah, everything you're saying is ringing. Very, very true. This wow. is so interesting. Okay. All right. So I'm going to give some, some transformational tips that mm-hmm. – um, people who are threes might uh gosh i'm not sure we we came into this at one so i'm not sure whether to give people transformational tips as ones or as threes but i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of run with uh how would i how am i gonna go i'm gonna go with threes because i suspect you might be a three and then because then also you could give me some feedback as as to whether or not this sounds like work that Mm -hmm. you have to do Mm -hmm. okay all right so so for threes, one of the things they have to do is they got to reconnect with their emotions mm-hmm. and get in touch with those aspects of themselves that are, are more tender, more uh, feeling centered. Because like threes are, are just, they, they do first, they think second, and they feel third. Okay, so that's sort of the hierarchy, right? They think first, they, they or they do first, they think second, they feel third. And what they need to do in their work is not to do less necessarily, but to bring feelings up to the same level as they're doing, if that makes sense, you know? Um, I think the, the other thing that, that threes have to do, and since you're in the workspace, let's, let's focus on that for a second in the, in the in sort of in the, the sort of the realm of, of business is um, they have to be able to slow down and listen to other people's uh, feelings uh, and to be patient with people who uh, have, you know, or want to be in conversation with them about uh, their interior world. Because for a three, they would be hearing about feelings and they'd be thinking, this is slowing me down. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get stuck here in a conversation about your personal issues when we got a project mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just don't, don't bring... Don't bring your personal issues to the office. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not why we're here. We're here to get some stuff done, right? Yeah. And and sometimes a three has to say, you know what? It's not just about productivity. It's about, life's about people. And I, I've just got to be more attuned to mm. other people's feelings and versus 
running them over in order to get the job done. Are you, is that a laugh I hear yeah. at the other end? Oh, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think another thing that, that threes have to do, and it sounds like you were kind of jammed into this, and it's actually a good thing when threes you know, actually crash um, because it's, it's what gets their attention, right? Is also just to learn that failure is part of life hmm. and that and that they have to avoid dressing failure up as success hmm. and using it to enhance their image because the image they want to project is I got it all together I'm cool under pressure hmm. I get stuff done I'm all I'm so accomplished I've done so much in my life and to realize that hey you know what to sometimes just say yep that was a fail, period. Can't even turn it into something positive for my own. That boom, just a failure. Can you deal with it? You know? Um, wow. And yeah, <laughs> I think another another thing that threes have to realize is I think they're inside their mind, there's this unchallenged limiting belief. And that belief is uh, people in the world only value others for what they do and for what they've accomplished rather than for who they are inside. And I think threes have to learn that that's not a hard and fast rule and that it is, in fact, a, 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 a belief that will drive very uh, self-limiting ways of thinking, acting, and feeling in the world. How does all that sound? Um, I mean, this sounds totally spot on. This sounds like exactly the issues I've sort of been been thinking and reading about over the past couple of years. Um, this is super interesting. You know, there are two books I'm reading right now that are basically spot on with everything you've just said. One of them is um, called The Rise, and it's basically about um, when creatives fail. And the other book is called Getting Unstuck, and it's about breaking free of the plateau effect. And you basically just sort of um, outlined the the premises of each of those books and the things you were just saying. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I, I, I can't remember the last time I had such a, a rich conversation uh, on the show that was also filled with the unexpected, you know. And, and I just so appreciate it because I think in moments like this, people learn and I think the big message today is what do we do when we misidentify type? You know, like what is it, you know, sort of teasing out nuances so that we can get to the truth about a type uh, and, you know, also being open to that. Maybe I didn't get it right the first time, you know, and, mm. and having someone come alongside and maybe suggest alternatives, you know. So your, your assignment, by the way, is to uh, now study up on threes. Wow. And wow. Uh, these... And threes are threes are beautiful people. Uh, uh, like every other number, when they're healthy, they are uh, just. I mean, just we need them. I can't imagine a world without them. Uh, but you know, when they head toward disintegration and unhealth, they do things that are not sound not unlike what you experienced in those two crash mm -hmm. moments. You know, uh, and I just want to thank you for such a rich conversation. Thank you. This was just amazing. I feel totally, you know, blown away. My my head is spinning. I think I'm going to go spend 12 hours in a dark room sort of reading through reading through stuff. <laughs> well, if you do. Now listen, here's here's the promise I got to get from you before I before I sign off and and uh, say goodbye to our folks. The promise I need from you is that after you spend 
let's say, a couple of weeks studying up on threes, that you would come back on and either confirm or say, nah, I don't think so. I think we, I don't, I think we were going down the wrong path, which I'm perfectly open to. And if it is true that you're a three to kind of like discuss what it did for you as you read about it and how it's going to sort of change the way you think about your own personal self-transformation. Absolutely. Amen. Hell yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know a lot of, well, I guess I could say that. I mean, I guess some ones would say hell yes, but but uh, quite a few would not. Um, oh, really? But, well, that's very right, good so, to know because I have yeah, but, a frame in my office that says hell yes. It's the only like word thing I have in my office on the wall because it's to remind me, you know, when something uh, is hell yes. That's really funny. Huh. More evidence. Okay. Okay. So more evidence. I have a friend of mine who's a one, and I mean an off the chart one, and the sign on their wall is integrity. Ah! <laughs> and it's it's just purely about integrity. And and now this person's an aggressive go-getter. He's certainly capable of saying hell yes, but he would be more inclined to say integrity before he ever said hell yes. Wow. You know? Wow. Okay. Um, Okay, so Claire, a million thanks to you. This was awesome. Wow, this was so, so great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh man, my pleasure. And give my best to Argentina. (laughs) I will. All right, peace and grace. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, bye-bye. Okay, Typology listeners, that was pretty great. I um, I feel like I've just had eight cups of coffee and I just love the unexpected, you know, times when conversations go in a direction I never could have predicted. I mean, this was rich. Uh, I want to remind you, by the way, if you're new to the Enneagram, I want you to go to the Typology Podcast website. It's typologypodcast.com. And if you, there's a page there, I can't remember the tab, it's either about or connect, but you go to that page, you could take my inventory, it's an, you know, sort of, it's called the Enneagram Introductory Assessment. And you can also get a PDF, it's titled, it's from my book, it's a a chapter titled Finding Your Type. And it would kind of give you an overview of all the different types and give you a little bit of language and understanding about the Enneagram. So as you listen to typology, you'll feel like, oh yeah, okay, I I think I have at least a rudimentary understanding of the Enneagram. Okay, friends, that's all I got. I want you to remember the great words of the author Oscar Wilde. You ready? Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Adios, amigos. Adios.